The gist is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code THEGIST. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, March 9th, 2015. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I find myself feeling sorry for Jeb Bush. I do. But maybe it's more like I'm feeling guilty for being a little discriminatory against him. So Jeb Bush is in Iowa. He's campaigning, trying to get the vote of Iowans. But he's not trying so hard that he's becoming someone other than who he is. He likes Common Core. He says, I like Common Core. Conservative activists hate Common Core. He's moderate, or relatively moderate, on immigration. He will explain that to conservatives who he encounters. In Iowa, they think Jeb is just too soft on these issues. You know, and so I wonder if his name weren't Jeb Bush, would I be giving him some more slack, some more credit? Would I and others like me in the media the kingmakers, if you will, would I say, no, there's a moderate guy, as far as Republicans go. There's a guy standing up to his party fringe. Would we say that if his name were Jeb Miller or Jeb Evans or Chris Evans or Steve Rogers? Those guys could Captain America or John Evans or John Huntsman. No, not John Huntsman. Or Jeb Reagan. So he reveals the results of a DNA test. He's not a Bush. He's Actually, a Reagan, he would definitely win for sure. That, by the way, is my path to become the Republican nominee for president. I would legally change my name to Ronald Reagan, thereby collecting the endorsement of every candidate on stage during every debate. Well, I'm a Ronald Reagan Republican. Actually, I believe in the policies of Ronald Reagan. And there I'd be there just going, huh? Look at this guy. I'm that guy. So, what if Jeb Bush, instead of Jeb Bush, what if he were like Jeb Stewart? Well, it would have been killed by his own troops. What if he were Jeb Davis? Saw him not paying close attention in the South. My I'd vote for him. What if he were Jeb Jar Binks? What if he were Jeb Jeb Bejbej for that small slice of voters who only go palindrome? They're the ones with the not lick 6102 signs in their front yards. If he weren't Jeb Bush, but were Jeb Smith or Jeb Jones, you know what? He would be given credit as the reasonable moderate choice. The reasonable moderate choice who never even raised enough money to win the Dade County Residential Area Commissioner Board member election. So enjoy your Bushness, Mr. Jeb Bush. On the show today, the songs and stories of the great American songbook, I spiel about a man who's never emailed, and the Yemenis who got caught in the crosshairs of that. But first, listen to me. Here I am giving the possible next president advice. Let's hear from the man who gave advice to our current commander-in-chief, David Axelrod. David Axelrod's current title is director of the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago. But didn't he already direct that picture? I mean, he was the top advisor to Barack Obama in his run for presidency, and then served in the White House as senior advisor and devised strategy that would one day become history. In a way, Axelrod was so successful at creating an aura of hope that hope became a harder and harder emotion to engender and a harder standard to meet. David Axelrod is out with a new book, Believer, My 40 Years in Politics. He joins me now. Hello. Great to be here. Thank you. I want to go right to uh, an event you didn't anticipate. President Obama is awarded the Nobel Prize. I want to first of all compliment you for correctly using the word nonplussed. Everyone seemed a little confused (laughs) by that. But from a political standpoint, was that more of a, you can't turn it down, but was was that more of a headache? Would you rather not have won it? Yeah, I mean, it seems odd to say, but it really was, because 
there was a presumptuousness to it that, uh, you know, it wasn't our decision. We didn't campaign for it. The president himself was stunned. He thought Robert Gibbs was playing a joke on him. As he said, you know, he's a great aficionado of Martin Luther King, but sit-ins wouldn't have stopped Adolf Hitler. Where I think it ties into something that we see throughout the administration is the idea of expectations. And, of course, every president wants to inspire optimism. But, you know, he's constantly been criticized by saying, oh, Obama promised hope and change. I think that's kind of unfair. I mean, did he? But how did you approach the expectations game and wanting to inspire people, but at the same time not give the impression, all right, it's all over. We're changing everything about the way Washington used to work. I think there was this sense, because he did inspire people so that the election of one person would overnight be a panacea, that every problem would yield to the force of this event. And that, of course, was never the case. As he used to say, even before the election, change isn't easy. Change is hard. You've got to fight for it day after day. But what I would say to those who say what happened to hope and change is that hope was never a promise. Hope was uh, a sentiment, but change was a promise. And all I know is that when we came to office, there were 180,000 troops in Iraq and Afghanistan. There were 15 uh, today. We had a health care system that was uh, cascading out of control, millions more people uninsured every year, double-digit inflation or near it. And uh, we have health uh, reform. Uh, we have, uh, you know, a lot of barriers knocked down to gay and lesbian Americans. And that's what this is about. It's not just about sitting in a circle, uh, holding hands and singing Kumbaya. It's about what can we do to move the country forward. Yeah. I always wondered about Kumbaya. If I wrote that song, I'd always be like, why is, why is my song always the one people pick on? Well, on the other hand, you'd be grateful that people remembered it. Yeah, but I don't know if you get any residuals just from the rhetorical flourish. My last question is, what is the most obscure but important accomplishment? Maybe something that made no headlines, but you're like, you know what? We did right by the, I don't know, snail darter or something. <laughs> well, I, I, I mean, it may, this may not uh, constitute obscure, but it was done without legislative action early in the administration. But the work that was done to work with the auto industry to raise fuel efficiency standards uh, was, an inc- you know, really an important step forward in terms of this fight against, uh, against climate change and global warming. And uh, to put the country on a path to double fuel efficiency standards by 2025 uh, and to do it with a voluntary cooperation of the auto industry was really quite an achievement because it had been decades uh, since we had raised the fuel efficiency standards. Uh, of cars. So I, 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 uh, I'm proud of that. I don't think it gets mentioned enough. It was a real accomplishment. David Axelrod, author of Believer, My 40 Years in Politics. Not a whole lot of kumbaya in this book, but good stuff. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, David. Thanks, Mike. Stamps, exciting and new. No, they're not that new, but they are damn exciting. I mean, we sometimes, I'm not going to say denigrate stamps, the idea of stamps, but we take stamps for granted. They can affix themselves on the corner of an envelope. They they take up like one, I don't know, 40th of the overall surface area of an envelope. And that little sticky piece makes that envelope, can make that envelope go around the country or or around the world. So I'm not saying anything bad about stamps. 
but I'm saying something good about stamps.com. Because that idea and where you get the stamps, maybe this is where it all stems from, that the process of getting the stamps is a little bit tiresome, a little bit cumbersome. Maybe because they know they have these magic pieces of sticky little paper. Like, hey, we got the magic paper. Why do we have to make getting the magic paper a pleasant experience? Enter stamps.com. They honor the magic and the majesty of the tiny little paper that affixes itself, but they let you print out said paper. You could do it from your own printer and you print out the little stamps and it's real U.S. postage and you print it out whenever you need it 24-7. So right now we have a special offer for stamps.com and the magic adhesive paper. Go to stamps.com, use the promo code THEGIST, qualifies for a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer. It includes digital scale and up to $55 free postage. I mean, you hear all that stuff. You're saying, now, this is a company that isn't taking for granted the magic of its product. It also wants to extend the magic to its process. So don't wait. Go to stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage. Type in the gist. That's stamps.com. Enter the gist. Sometimes when we think about the landscape or even the concept of landscape, we take things for granted. Imagine the Black Hills of South Dakota without Mount Rushmore on it. We say to ourselves, oh, it wasn't that always there. Or even the skyline of Manhattan, of course, once when it was sold for $24 worth of trinkets, just looked like a bunch of rocks and trees. So taking the landscape for granted. The same thing is true with songs. We talk about the Great American Songbook, songs written by the Gershwins and sung by Frank Sinatra. And it seems like it was always there, but it wasn't. It's the subject of Ben Yagoda's new book, The B-Side, The Death of Tin Pan Alley and the Rebirth of the Great American Songbook. And Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming in. Thank you, Mike. And not just the origins of the Great American Songbook. And when I say we assume that it was always there, we perhaps have forgotten, but you remind us, there was a great risk that once it was there, it almost went away. Well, certainly as early as the late 1940s, uh, which we think of now as right in the shank of that era, people were bemoaning, uh, why aren't any good songs being written? Frank Sinatra saying, everything that's sent to me is junk. Uh, Variety magazine editorialized, there's no good songs. Uh, All the singers, Billy Eckstein, Nat King Cole, were complaining about it even then. And also that period was before... I mean, you use that phrase, Great American Songbook. That wasn't invented till the 70s. Yeah. And the idea of that thing being there, even without a name, really, I don't think existed till the late 50s. So in that late 40s, early 50s period, before rock and roll, before Elvis, everything seemed like it was in flux. No one knew what was going on in, in the world of popular music. So what gets in the Great American Songbook? What are the characteristics? Certainly, there are some composers, Cole Porter, everything he wrote pretty much, let's put it in, sure. But what were the songs that were maybe popular that we wouldn't call in the Great American Songbook? And maybe even songs then that were obscure that now, of course, we put in it. The easiest answer is songs that have lasted. Mm-hmm. There's a song called Moonlight Becomes You by Jimmy Van Hughes and Johnny Burke. Beautiful song. And... There is no official list of the Great American Songbook, but pretty much everyone would agree. Alec Wilder, who wrote the book on it, and and other, you know, Tony Bennett sings it. That's another good way to judge what's in there <laughs> yeah. if he sings it. So we all say, yes, great song, Jimmy Van Heusen, great composer, Johnny Burke, great lyricist. It was a throwaway number in a Hope Crosby road picture. Uh, one of them sang to, you know, Dorothy L'Amour under a waterfall or something. Moonlight become you It goes with your hair 
certainly know the right thing to wear. If I were to mention part of your thesis, which was there was this era where it was greatly imperiled, I think people who are maybe 50 or younger would say, sure, rock and roll. That's not the era you're talking about. You're not talking about the Beatles or even Elvis. You're talking about a real trickly period typified or exemplified or whatever the pejorative of exemplified is by how much is that doggy in the window? Right. And actually, the exact title is The Doggy in the Window. Oh, The dog. Okay. <laughs> no question mark. How much is that doggy in the window? <laughs> the one with the waggly tail. How much is that doggy in the window? I do hope that dog is for sale. The simplistic story is that Greater Mick and Starbuck then rock. Yeah. Slightly less simplistic was Greater Mick and Starbuck, junky stuff like Dog in the Window, then rock. Someone once said that people are fascinated by the period right before their birth. I was born in 54, so oh. this kind of 51, 52, 53 yeah, yeah. fascinates me. Yeah, for me, it's me. like Woodstock. I mean, I don't know if I'm fascinated, but there was a time I definitely was. Yeah, yeah. you could touch it but, you, it, but it has to be. You didn't live it. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. You know, the more I look into it, the kind of cooler it is. The Great Mikasongwa period, as great as it was, it was a closed society. ASCAP was what all the writers belonged to, and it was like a very exclusive country club. It was just New York and Hollywood and nothing else. So no African-Americans, right. no so-called hillbillies, uh, no folk music. And in the 40s, all this stuff, for a variety of reasons, started bubbling up. So you had Doggy in the Window, but you also had a number one song done by a communist group called The Weavers with Pete Seeger that was their rendition of an ex African-American ex-con named Leadbelly's Goodnight Irene, arranged by Gordon Jenkins, who later worked with Frank Sinatra, went to number one on the charts. Good night, Irene. Good night, Irene. I guess in my the B-side that went to number two was their version of Tsana, 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 which was the Israeli national anthem. So all kinds of like weird, yeah. cool, you know, Patty Page with the Tennessee Waltz did a duo with like four overdub versions of herself. And that's a great song. Les Paul and Mary Ford were doing stuff. Country songs were slipping in. R&B, Louis Jordan, Hank Williams was coming in. So a lot of, of cool stuff, some of which actually directly led to Elvis and rock and roll was on the airwaves in that period. Yeah, but the period of the 50s, and we say, okay, 50s, tell me the songs. People will say doo-wop. People will mention Elvis, Frank, Frankie Valley. The number one songs, like, it always shocks me to go over these lists. So the number one song of 1959, not a bad song, but it was Johnny Horton's The Battle of New Orleans. <laughs> Number two was Mac the Knife by Bobby, Bobby Darren, Darren, with which, not, I mean, I guess, great German songbook or something, but yeah, Bobby no, Darren turned it American. We bring that yeah. to the German song. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, what you were saying earlier about imagining a landscape without something, I mean, what I was thinking of was we now look on rock and roll as this inevitable thing. I yeah. mean, that's the number one historiographical fallacy that something happened, therefore it was inevitable. And at the time, even after Elvis, no one in 1959 realized that it was going to become the thing. 
So even then, Mitch Miller, Sing Along With Mitch, was huge in the early 60s. He was playing songs from the teens, like Let Me Call You Sweetheart. Now, you've been on our show before talking about your day job, I guess. You're a linguist or you look at words. You've written many books. Uh, you're an eclectic learner. But what <laughs> about, is there any connection between words and lyrics and your love of or your fascination with the uh, Great American Songbook? Well, it, it, it's weird. I mean, the thing that speaks to me most is not the words but the music. Yeah. And I guess it's similar to that idea of being fascinated with what happened before I was born that I understand words uh, more completely than I do music. It's a bit of a mystery to me. So the, the words of the Great American Songbook songs, the lyricists like Yip Harburg, Lorenz Hart, Dorothy Fields, uh, is, is often brilliant. And, and I associate it with the peak period in light verse, which no one writes anymore, you know, great, right. clever, witty, rhymed things that Ogden Ash. But, but to me, the, the real mark of the, the greatness of it is, is the music. That has not been replicated since. Yeah. Although, light verse, Cole Porter, he's right up there with Ogden Nash, if you just wrote down his lyrics. Absolutely. No, I completely agree. And, and I actually paid money out of my pocket to buy the rights to reprint I Get a Kick Out of You yeah. in its entirety in the book, just because the lyrics are so great and the melody as well. Yeah. And if you want to talk about great lyrics and even timely lyrics, even though we call the Great American Songbook timeless, You're the Top, You're the Coliseum has references to Cellophane and Mickey Mouse. And they were right on, they were like a Dylan album in the 60s or a Public Enemy album or something that's talking about exactly what was going on. There's right a there. charming quality. I mean, Again, it's subjective, but this music doesn't feel dated the way movies of the period often do, comedy of the period does. But yeah, I've been around the world in a plane, settled revolutions in Spain. The North Pole I've charted, but I can't get started with you. I mean, it's so <laughs> dated, but it's so great. You're the night. You're the tower, Peter. You're the smile. The B-side, the death of Tin Pan Alley, and the rebirth of the great American song, Ben Yagoda. Thank you, Ben. Mike, thank you. It's always a pleasure. You're Napoleon Brandy. You're the little light of a summer night in Spain. You're the National Gallery. You're Garbo. And now the spiel, the plain truth. Senator Lindsey Graham, Republican of South Carolina, caused quite a stir on Meet the Press yesterday when he told Chuck Todd that he doesn't email. You have a private email address? I don't, I don't email. You, no, you can have every email I've ever sent. I've never sent one. You don't email? 
Of course you email. Everybody emails. He emails. She emails. I just emailed, and I'm ready to email again. Don't email. But no, he doesn't email. Adam Carolla has this comedy bit called Rich Man, Poor Man, like things that both rich men and poor men do, but not the people in between. Examples, a gravel driveway or an outdoor shower, so you get the concept. I think not emailing tops this list. You're either a victim of the digital divide or you have a retinue of staffers and attendants to cover that for you. Every other member of the Meet the Press panel seemed not to stop and gape at this revelation offered by the senator who happens to serve on the Senate Judiciary Subcommittee on Privacy, Technology, and the Law. What do you mean she was using a private email server yeah. instead of... And that's what this is. A that's private exactly. email server. This isn't Gmail or Yahoo. Have you created her own gone server. to a job and not... Yeah. But also, as you guys know... Okay, but can you imagine taking a job and never sending an email? I mean, can you imagine failing to yield in traffic, but also never sending an email? Or unwrapping your cough drops before the show starts, yet never sending an email? Can you imagine partying with George Clooney at his Lake Como house, but never having sent an email in your life? So that revelation got some attention. But at another point in the same interview, Lindsey Graham said something that made me take notice. Here he was talking about the Iranians. They just toppled the, the government in Yemen by supporting the Houthis. The Houthis? Supporting the Houthis. I know of the Shia tribesmen who are now running Yemen via a coup. Who did you say they were? It's these Houthi militia. Yes, yeah, CNN. I always did think they were the Houthis. Al Jazeera thinks so too. The minority Shia Houthis who have been on the streets for weeks. And at a panel sponsored by the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars, here you had former House Intelligence Committee member Jane Harmon. Wield the Houthis like another Hezbollah. You had scholars like Peter Salisbury and Charles Schmitz. The Houthis, about who? The Houthi will win. The... And you also had actual Yemeni, Mohammed al-Basha, the spokesman for the Yemen embassy. Let's hear how he says it. The Houthis. Seems that when the Houthis, they're moving along with the Houthis. The Houthis and others know that they could win. Let's contrast this with Lindsey Graham running for president. We think he's running for president with his biggest credential being foreign policy experience. Now, look, I've mispronounced a name or two in my time, so I am sympathetic. What may be going on here is that Senator Graham is a senator from South Carolina. And as we know, the greatest band in South Carolina history evokes the hootiness of the name. Therefore, it wouldn't surprise me if the senator went on to say... ...toppled the, the government in Yemen by supporting the Houthis. Well, they have a cadre of explosive experts within their ranks. They could blow up ordnance and IEDs. They follow orders blindly. These so-called blowfish work with the Houthis to make their enemies' tears fall down like rain. And if the sun comes up tomorrow, well, they'll just let her be. And so I understand that this was all explained in an email, so I had my staff dictate it into a dictaphone, and I made a ditto of that, and then I copied it onto a legal pad, and I am now immersed in that report, Chuck. And that's it for today's show. You can listen to The Gist on iTunes. When you're there, leave a review. It's great to leave the reviews. I read them all. Let me read, uh, this is the latest review. Terrific, smart. I generally have dinner with Mike at least twice a week. Oh, and he's great company cleaning the house on weekends. Like I tell my little kids not to put reviews, but if they, if they want to give me five stars, they can. 
The Gist is part of the Panoply Network. Check out the entire roster of podcasts while you're there at iTunes at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Do you need me to spell it? I'll spell it. P-A-N-O-P-L-Y. I'm going to stop spelling it, people, because I think you know how Panoply is spelled. Andrea Salenzi is producer of The Gist. You need to take her seriously, which is why she changed her birth name from Andrea Milhouse Nixon. Just intern Claire Tennis Getter connotes getting the tennis, but what would she bring to mind if you called her by the name she was christened with, Claire Buttafuoco? The Just Managing Producer, Joel Meyer, for obvious reasons, goes by the name Joel Meyer rather than his birth name, Joel Galuli. Our executive producer, Andy Bowers, was not born Andy Bowers, but Andy Boutros Boutros Galley. The gist. Listenership did drop off when we stopped calling the show Dick Clark's Rockin' Gist Eve, but we had to drop that out of sensitivity and a copyright infringement threat. Thanks for listening. This is Josh Levine, host of Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen. On this week's episode, it's a very special episode. College basketball in crisis. Crisis. Da, 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 this, is such, this is such a special promo that Mike and Stefan are here. Everyone's on the promo. Why is there a crisis? Maybe you can listen to find out. You can subscribe to Hang Up and Listen at iTunes.com slash Slate Podcasts. <laughs>